Before we get started with the podcast today, I wanted to give a little bit of a, a caveat and a little bit of uh, information here. Combination of things came together in this podcast. A fantastic topic, so I still feel like it's definitely worth hearing. Uh, but uh, for myself, not having internet for a couple of weeks, uh, secondary to our invisible fence people cutting our fiber, uh, that's awesome. Uh, but also, you'll hear some uh, digital noise and some gaps uh, with our guest as well. Uh, because she is in California, and they were experiencing significant storms and weather at the time, so there is some breakups. I've edited as much as I could, but there is going to still be uh, some of those noises, so I apologize for that, but this is still incredible information that I think uh, is beneficial to our emergency physicians around the country. Ryan Stanton here with AZEP Frontline, joined once again by one of our guests that we've had quite often with regard to uh, pediatric topics, pediatric emergency medicine topics, and once again for our Pediatric Emergency Medicine Assembly 2023, the streaming conference taking place end of March and the beginning of April. We have Marianne Gauchy-Hill, and she is joining us once again, and we really appreciate it, and we are talking about a topic that Honestly, most people around here didn't know existed until COVID-19 and assumed it was all because of the vaccine, but apparently it wasn't. News to us. We're going to talk about myocarditis. So, Dr. Gashiel, thanks for joining us once again here on the front line. All right. I don't speak of the whole specs of COVID-19, uh, both the disease causing it, the vaccine causing it, and then there's many, many causes of myocarditis. So I think it's time to uh, revisit this. Also, the American Heart Association came out with a scientific statement in 2021 on the diagnosis and management of myocarditis in children. So very, very timely uh, for our conference this year to get us updated, hear what the latest guidelines are and some of the differences in the presentation of patients with what I would call um, myocarditis from causes pre-COVID COVID myocarditis, and, and, uh, which is uh, essentially the multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, and then uh, finally the vaccine-related. So this actually this update, um, the HA scientific statement also updates some of the terms too. So let's talk about some of the terms that we're using. We love to do that on occasion. Sepsis loves to do it about every 17 minutes. What are we doing in terms of differences in the paradigm shift with regard to the diagnosis? Yeah, the, uh, with that, it's, it's interesting. Previously, it was related to um, a biopsy, and pretty much it needed to be proven by biopsy. It could be suspected uh, utilizing, you know, MR or cardiac, uh, uh, basically magnetic, uh, magnetic resonance imaging. You could use it and it would be suspected. And then clinically, you suspect it and it's called possible. So necrosis of myocardium confirmed, meaning uh, now that uh, the cardiac MR is so good and that there are criteria that uh, have been laid out and, and validated related to uh, myocarditis uh, utilizing MR. And then finally, there's this suspected possible, which is now that that combo uh, clinical category. And it's probably 
based on a number of things. One, history of a viral illness, uh, a proven viral illness with some evidence of inflammation of the heart. And for the COVID-19 vaccine, it's going to be uh, proximity to receiving one of the mRNA vaccines. Typically, the Pfizer-BioNTech is the one that causes most of the myocarditis. And, and I, I, you know, we'll get into it, but the there has been a paradigm shift in terms of the cardiac MR imaging. So let's get into that, some of the presenting symptoms, because that is the challenge. Um, you know, you, you've talked about some of the viral prodromes, things of that nature. Um, what are some of the, one, the requirements, and then two, those presentations, which aren't going to clearly give us the one and one plus two equals myocarditis diagnosis? Yeah, first of all, there's a zillion etiologies. I mean, I, I'll talk about it, but there's a huge laundry list that includes, you know, viruses, bacterial agents, spirochetes, you know, fungi, protozoa, you know, onychos, cardiotoxins, et cetera. And then inflammatory conditions and other things such as sarcoidosis and uh, thyroid disease. But really, I think for us, it's, um, we often will not know the action with signs and symptoms. And typically, it's related to a virus. You get a viral prodrome. Uh, Fever is very common. Uh, uh, it's not universal, however. You know, it's over 50%. Arrhythmias are also uh, common. Syncope in about 10%. And Unfortunately, sudden cardiac death in 6%. And I've had several kids uh, that presented with myocarditis that had a syncopal episode, went into cardiac arrest, came in and, and got resuscitated, but um, on point of care echo showed, it, showed significant uh, myocardial damage, meaning uh, hypokinesis globally that had uh, post-ROS ECG findings. And those are the kids that fulminant myocarditis where you can really make a difference uh, by uh, supporting them circulatory devices such as LVADs, ECMO, et cetera. So anyway, but the other thing that we do see is a more chronic form. Those, that's very typical in adults where you have this, you know, they present, maybe you had a virus and then you come back and you've, now you've got a little asthma, but you don't have a history of asthma and you keep coming back, you have abdominal pain, and then you have asthma and shortness of breath. And then eventually an echo is done and it's determined that there's myocarditis. So there is a chronic form and those are really tough to pick up. Um, in reading on the literature, it's, these frequent episodes over months associated with abdominal pain and wheezing uh, that kind of uh, give you a picture of potential myocarditis. So, you know, getting the, the usual markers and uh, chest X-ray and EKG can be extremely helpful as well. But um, those are some of the things that I would, I would look for, a recurrent syndrome and then this fulminant where they come in, viral syndrome, and then they become short of breath, have signs of shock. Uh, those are the ones, the more fulminant type, which typically needs uh, basically anti-inflammatory steroids, et cetera, although there's not great treatments. It's mainly supportive. 
yeah, like everything with the human body, it's against everything that everybody wants with healthcare, which is time and patience. Nobody's got that. We are regularly holding 45 to as many as 75 admitted patients daily in our department. Unless a patient is critically ill, we see most new patients in the waiting room. This is an extreme burden on our young, energetic, committed staff. We experience extreme staff shortages. In over 25 years of emergency medicine experience, I have never seen such critical shortages of space, staff, and equipment. Despite the overwhelming situation, I see acts of bravery by our staff as they do their best in such extreme circumstances. Each day I fear that a patient or staff member will be harmed because of the critical situation in which we are required to serve. I pray that no one is harmed or dies. This is one of the many stories ASEP collected to push for legislative change concerning emergency department boarding. Learn how your stories can help shape legislation that impacts the emergency medicine specialty by registering now for the Leadership and Advocacy Conference at asep.org forward slash LAC. Use promo code EMPOWER to save $100 on registration. Did So there was a little bit of break in there, so let's, let's dive, kind of rewind a little bit into the diagnosis, um, you know, because it missed the labs. So the labs that may be of importance, and is there anything, you know, is there a gold standard with regard to the imaging, or we just, you know, echo, MRI, whatever, your modality of choice? Yeah, sure. First of all, there's no biomarker that differentiates myocarditis from other forms of uh, inflammation or injury. Uh, you could send a CKMB. Uh, troponin is probably the one most used. A BNP, B-type natriuretic peptide would be good. Uh, we generally, especially for... Um, uh, the MIS-C, we send other inflammatory markers uh, like C-reactive protein, uh, sedimentation rate can be done. Uh, chest X-ray, EKG, those are very important. I think an echocardiogram, uh, absolutely, to look for either um, global hypokinesis, focal hypokinesis, or signs of pericardial effusion. But there's not any one. And then the issue is when you do a cardiac M, uh, MRI, uh, which can help establish the diagnosis by something called the Lake Louise criteria, which has been subsequently validated. And there's a number of studies looking at that. And essentially, there's three components of it. It's areas of edema, uh, addition to um, the edema that you see, it will be areas of necrosis are also important. And this is going to be on gadolinium enhanced uh, MRI. And I'm no expert in that area, but there are some very strict criteria of how you make that diagnosis. Uh, which is considered confirmed diagnosis through the cardiac MRI. So I think getting your radiologists involved. Are, um, the last thing I should mention are PCR testing. Yeah, getting the biomarkers, I think, is really helpful. Uh, there are many different now um, PCR tests that are available. 
to pick up uh, whether or not a patient has had a recent uh, viral infection. So I think that's something to really consider like parvo, uh, herpes type six, adeno, enterovirus, EBV, CMV, and of course, our lovely COVID-19, all of those. So again, C-reactive protein, sed rate, CBCs would be sent. I mean, obviously you're gonna send electrolytes, but that's not part of the diagnosis really. PCR testing, chest X-ray, ECG, and then cardiac, cardiac enzymes such as a CKMB and troponin as well as a BNP. I think uh, one of the big considerations, you know, of, of course, getting that echo knocked out, you mentioned already some of the therapies, which kind of sounds like it's the shingles approach too, that we do some stuff and maybe helps. So IV immunoglobulins, corticosteroids, antiviral agents, depending on the etiology or diagnosis, uh, which I love the fact that we're at the point now in healthcare where we actually list which virus it is, which just a few years ago, we had no way of actually in the emergency department telling which virus things were. Um, for most of us that, you know, now do have a, um, a, a panel that is available. Um, but let's talk about the restriction of activities for kids, uh, because I think that's one of the most important things for us, because you talked about that chance of sudden cardiac death, arrhythmia, those things. Um, for us as emergency physicians, what needs to be that advice and when do we say, potentially back at it or level of clearance necessary, you know, cause I feel like we're kind of almost in this concussion, concussion realm. Yeah, no, your point is well taken. If you had mild symptoms and there's no evidence to shortness of breath, you have a normal cardiac, uh, there's no, you, you suspect it uh, based on symptoms, but there's no elevation of any of the cardiac enzymes that I mentioned. Uh, there would be an opportunity for non-steroidals and close follow-up, but I would not exercise <laughs> until um, we know that the inflammation has gone away and the symptoms are gone. Uh, most of these kids get admitted. You know, they come in with chest pain. They may show some EKG findings like T-wave inversions. Uh, certainly if there's STL elevation or conduction defects, uh, these are kids that are going to come in, but they... Uh, Often when the diagnosis is made with elevated markers, uh, those kids get admitted, and especially those who are really sick will get treated with immune modulators, IVIG, IVIG and um, steroids. But you know, your, your point is well taken. Uh, we do send pericarditis home. Uh, we have sent pericarditis home and those uh, do not show any signs of heart failure. The echo is normal, um, but there's some evidence of inflammation that may be cardiac inflammation with enzymes, but nothing uh, diagnostic or concerning. Uh, you could potentially send them on, on non-steroidals. Yeah, and it's and I, and I think that's really important after, especially now after the um, you know some of this transient. Myocarditis we've seen myocarditis we've seen with the uh, with the vaccine some that were even more so that we're seeing with COVID nineteen itself and then the classic versions that existed already you know we're 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 seeing some of that and as you mentioned earlier that potential for more of a chronic presentation of saying okay this is when it's safe to go back to activity which I imagine is going to involve uh, cardiology of some nature echoes 
markers, whatever it may be, to kind of make sure that we're getting the wall motion and everything's working as it is. So let's kind of dive into that. We actually now have research. That's the beauty of the medical community is we now have significant amount of research and data on COVID-19 and the vaccine. Of course, we don't necessarily need as much now, but um, you know it is still important because we're still seeing cases. We're still seeing vaccinations. Uh, kind of look into this data that we have now comparing traditional COVID-19 and vaccine-induced myocarditis. Yeah, I think there's um, several studies looking at this particular issue uh, and suspected uh, myocarditis after COVID-19 vaccine has come out. Just there's been several, some looking at classic myocarditis um, and then the MIS-C, which is probably COVID at a COVID infection related multi-inflammatory syndrome. So if we start with the suspected, uh, let's just say suspected myocarditis after COVID-19 vaccine in circulation in 22, they looked at this, there were about 136, I think, cases, uh, about 50 of them were confirmed, the balance uh, were probable in that pro probable suspected at 26 centers, and that's based on the proximity of the vaccine. What they found is that 94% of the vaccines involved were the Pfizer-BioNTech. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, most occurred after the second dose. So they were primed with the first, got the second dose, and then got that inflammation. All of them had elevated troponin, so they got admitted. Um, they could either stay a day or two, but the median stay was two, meaning about half the kids stayed two days. Uh, there were some that had uh, reduced uh, left ventricular ejection fractions, less than 55%, but all of them pretty much recovered by the time they were discharged. Uh, they had a mild clinical course, and then uh, that cardiac MRI findings making the diagnosis uh, were very common. So it was really mild. And I think that's been the classic um, teaching now uh, about it. They typically presented with chest pain, you know, your typical kind of pleuritic chest pain, pressure, discomfort, shortness of breath, some with palpitations and ECG findings that are typical, which include T-wave inversion. Okay, so in terms of the findings, they were really mild. They stayed a short period of time. And that um, in terms of how they presented is your typical chest pain, pressure, discomfort, little shortness of breath, some with palpitations, very few with syncope, but uh, they all had an elevated troponin and typically had EKG findings with T-wave inversion, some with uh, tachycardia. But that was pretty much it, and they had a benign course. Most of them did not receive any treatment, but some received uh, uh, immunoglobulin, especially early on. We weren't sure where this was going, uh, but now we've got a little more history here that uh, demonstrates this is fairly benign. So with you know, looking at that research and data, it suggests that um, that even with COVID-19, but also with the vaccine itself, that it is a lesser version, less, you know, better or a faster responding slash recovery process than we see with the more traditional versions of myocarditis. 
So let's just take a couple of minutes and, and put a bow on myocarditis and, and get the bottom line now that it's something that uh, probably the vast majority of the public didn't know about uh, before COVID-19, but now everybody's got some, at least some opinion on one way or the other. Yeah, first of all, your classic myocarditis, and there was a study that was just uh, published in 2022 in JAHA, Journal of the American Heart Association, which compared uh, children with classic myocarditis, uh, the multi-inflammatory syndrome related to COVID-19, and vaccine-related to myocarditis. What you see is that with the MIS-C kids tend to be younger, uh, and relative to classic myocarditis, MIS-C and vaccine-related myocarditis present more mildly and have a really good recovery. Uh, and generally very rapidly with the vaccine-related and um, pretty rapidly with MIS-C. There have been a few of the MIS-C cases that have been reported that certainly have required support, and it's generally uh, supportive care. What's interesting about the vaccine-related as compared to um, plastic myocarditis seems to be much more common in white adolescent males as compared to what you see, you know, typically with your classic myocarditis. Uh, it's more prominent class Americans as an example um, as compared to, to white race. And also MIS-C is more common in African-Americans as compared to the white race. But vaccine-related, way more common in Caucasians. And then in terms of um, signs and symptoms, they're all pretty much, you know, chest pain, shortness of breath. Um, and uh, probably the big distinguishing uh, factor is just that the kids with classic myocarditis tend to present more seriously, um, so more critically. And I think that's really an important difference and they often have even higher inflammatory markers. So I think that's good to know. I mean, it's just having an understanding of, of what it means. And I think there's been a lot of hoopla around the COVID-19 vaccine related or MIS-C. And I think that typically symptoms are short-lived. They definitely indicate myocarditis, pericarditis, but they're um, short-lived and the children don't die of the disease. Classic myocarditis is different, more severe. You can die of the disease. Uh, they may need to go on mechanical type, uh, you know, cardiac uh, support devices such as ECMO, LVAD, and especially the fulminant myocarditis. And we sometimes throw the IVIG and uh, we throw, uh, you know, steroids at it, especially with evidence of a lot of inflammation for the MIS-C and others. Uh, we know that uh, the IL-6 inhibitors uh, may uh, be beneficial, so that's something to consider. And uh, I think that's that's pretty much the bottom line for myocarditis. It sounds like uh, one of those things where um, we got to do something. So you're going to do some of the medicines may not make a huge difference. The, the sounds like the, the most significant is the tincture of time and patience and 
getting appropriate referrals, especially if you have um, symptoms and, and clearance before returning to strenuous activities uh, for these pediatric patients. Uh, we're talking to uh, Marion Cauchy-Hill, and we're talking about the um, uh, about myocarditis, and we're kind of priming up for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Assembly. So how can folks get in touch with you if they have any questions or want any further details of myocarditis or whatever? Because actually the other thing that we just talked about earlier today is the Pediatric Readiness Project, and you're always on the uh, top of mind with regard to those discussions. So uh, questions about that? Yeah, please uh, reach out for any of those topics. It's mgauchy-hill, that's M-G-A-U-S-C-H-E-hill at DHS, like Department of Health Services, dhs.lacounty.gov, or you can uh, reach me social media at mgauchy-hill. And um, yeah, I love the readiness project. Get your hospital ready. A uh, lot of good stuff. Uh, we've got that article submitted uh, for the last assessment. So Ryan, I'd love to come on again and we can talk about that one when it's all ready to ready to rock. Well, I appreciate that. And um, uh, we got some of that earlier today. And interestingly, I just figured out the issue today because if everybody listening noticed there's a little bit of connection issues. And I've talked about on mine. I don't have internet because the invisible fence and windstream keep cutting each other's lines. And so I'm just living living like the olden times here with wagons all around the house. But with LA, um, with uh, LA County, that was actually with the interview this morning. I guess you guys have uh, more weather and everything coming through. And uh, there was even this morning when we were chatting, there was um, having on an interview, uh, there was uh, internet based problems just because of the weather that's there. So you're used to such perfect weather that the infrastructure doesn't do well with this onslaughts and onslaughts of, of rain. So I appreciate you joining us. I hope this means a uh, no uh, no significant risk of, uh, of wildland fires or anything this year. You've gotten more water than you've needed for the last decade and a half, but appreciate you joining us again here on the front line. Thanks so much. Really good to see you, Ryan. Take care. Appreciate it. As for me, you can contact me, rstantonasep.org, rstantonasep.org, at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.